Wheeling Aviation Podcast is presented as entertainment, not flight instruction. Though some participants are certified flight instructors, their comments, opinions, and discussions of flying techniques are theirs alone. None of the co-hosts or guests on this podcast are acting as your flight instructor. Please consult your own CFI for guidance on your specific flight training, aeronautical knowledge, and aircraft operation. This is the Stuck Mike Avcast, an aviation podcast about learning to fly, living to fly, and loving to fly. Welcome to episode 286. Today we have a special guest who followed Amelia Earhart's around the world solo flight in a single engine airplane. But before we begin, just a quick shout out to our sponsors at stuckmikeavcast.com slash pay it forward. These are the folks that have donated money so that people can get the scholarships guide for free. If you want to know more about how you can help people get that scholarships guide for free, go to stuckmikeavcast.com slash pay it forward. And if you're one of those people that wants one of those for free, go to aviationcareerspodcast.com slash free. Now entering cruise flight. Joining me today is Brian Lloyd, who flew solo around the world, a flight in his Mooney. And that movie's called Spirit, and that commemorated Amelia Earhart's flight, and that famous flight 80 years ago on that same day. Uh, so, Brian, welcome to the show. It's great to have you on. Thank you. It's great to be here. I am so excited to talk about this. Uh, this is uh, something that most people wouldn't imagine doing, uh, especially in a Mooney single engine, round the world flight. Uh, Solo. But, and by yourself, exactly. And that was the original intent. Uh, so, you know, before we, we talk about that, you know, in my mind, before you came on, I was thinking, just why, why do this? You know, um, it's, it's hard to say, but, um, it goes back many years. Uh, my father was, uh, was a pilot in the Navy and he taught me to fly, uh, back when I was uh, 14, when I bought my first airplane, which was a, a 1959 Comanche 250. Um, my dad became my partner when I got a little, little too overstretched and we restored the airplane to its uh, former glory. And then he said, one day he said, you know, we ought to go someplace interesting. I go, sure. Hey, let's, let's hop in the plane and go where you want to go. He said, I want to go to Paris, you know, Paris, Texas. He goes, no, Paris, France. And, uh, I, I really Paris, France in the Mooney said, yeah, we can do that. My dad, of course, had thousands of hours of uh, single engine over water uh, Navy flying in World War II and Korea. Um, so to him, that seemed like sort of a reasonable thing to do. So guess what? We flew to Paris, France uh, for the Paris Air Show in 1985. And of course, you know, after we did that, the question was, well, what are you going to do after that? Um, so he and I talked about a number of different things. We came within a gnat's whisker of uh, recreating uh, the Soviet flight. Uh, in 1937, also the same year Amelia Earhart flew around the world, the Soviets flew a three-man aircraft, single-engine aircraft, from Moscow to San Jacinto, California, near San Diego. And for a long time, that stood as the longest unrefueled uh, flight, I think until it was broken by a B-52 in the uh, 50s or 60s. But anyway, um, that didn't come to come to pass. We kept talking about things. Unfortunately, in 2012, my father passed away and it just hit me. If I'm going to do that flight, some flight uh, that he and I were going to do that was going to be special, um, I better get on the stick and start doing it. So I started thinking about what I wanted to do. 
And I was one of my bucket list items was fly around the world. So I said, well, if I'm going to fly around the world, which way am I going to go? How am I going to do it? And it kind of clicked, you know, I was looking at Amelia Earhart's route and, um, you know, when she flew at that time, she was attempting to fly around the world, following the longest possible path she could fly. So she wanted to fly around the world at the equator because uh, no one else had, had attempted that route. So I looked at that and said, you know what? That's going to be a really challenging flight. So that's why I decided to, uh, to follow her route. So that's how I ended up in uh, making that final decision in 2012 to go ahead and uh, fly around the world at the equator following Amelia Earhart. So um, about the airplane, how did I choose the Mooney? And it turns out the choice for the Mooney started with that flight to Paris. So my father and I arrived at Gander, Newfoundland in the evening and uh, landed and parked the airplane. And shortly thereafter, a Mooney 231 uh, landed and pulled up next to us. And they were leaving the next day for Shannon, Ireland, just like we were. Well, uh, in getting our airplane prepared, uh, we had to put 110 gallons of ferry fuel in the back of the airplane so that we could fly nonstop from Gander to Shannon. And turns out the Mooney was flying the same route. And so, of course, I had to look at their setup and uh, their ferry fuel was 30 gallons um, plus whatever they had in the wings. And ours was 110 gallons. And they were going to complete the flight in nine hours and we were going to complete the flight in 11 hours. And I thought, you know, if I were going to do a really long flight somewhere, I think I'm going to have to take a serious look at the Mooney 231. I think it's got some, some real advantages for, uh, for long distance uh, flight. So that was sort of the key that helped me decide that I was going to use a 231 for this flight. One of the other reasons I wanted a 231 is I wanted to be able to go up high. Uh, one of the things about flying around the world near the equator is you're going to constantly be in or around thunderstorms. Uh, I ended up crossing the intertropical convergence zone, which is the belt of thunderstorms uh, near the equator uh, that's there pretty much all the time. And then, of course, um, uh, flying through Asia. So I wanted to be able to go high to be able to see around uh, the bottom parts of thunderstorms, get up, uh, be able to find my way, thread my way through the, uh, the uh, towering cumulus. And the higher you go, the better off you can see. And uh, sort of below the outflow cloud and above the, the, the surface cloud, and you have the best chance of, of being able to see to penetrate uh, or, or to, to get around those thunderstorms. And I did spend a lot of time going around thunderstorms. That was one of the, the big issues with this flight uh, going around the world. So that's, that's a little bit of how the airplane came to be and uh, how I uh, decided to make that trip. The airplane, the Mooney, great, great choice. One of the challenges I can imagine is oxygen. I mean, how do you, I was just thinking that in my head, how do you plan that? You know, you have to have room for that. You carry a lot. <laughs> uh, I put together a system from uh, Mountain High Oxygen. Um, they're, they're a great supplier of oxygen equipment. Uh, they have a uh, pulse demand regulator, oxygen regulator, which uses the least amount of oxygen possible uh, because it only gives you oxygen, oxygen while you're inhaling. So uh, I put together a system with two 115 cubic foot um, Kevlar bottles. 
uh, which pretty much filled up the uh, bottom one foot of my baggage compartment. But it gave me um, about 200, uh, about 100 hours of oxygen at 25,000 feet. Um, so that basically I'd hoped that that would last me until I got back into a first world country. And in fact, uh, I didn't have to refill my oxygen until I got to Singapore. And then that was enough oxygen to carry me all the way back to the United States. Wow. Absolutely fascinating. You know, before we go into some of those other challenges in your flight, and I'd love to hear more about communications, that type of thing. First, I want people to realize that this isn't your first rodeo. I mean, you have you've flown quite a bit, and uh, you know, someone who's thinking of attempting this, uh, you had a little bit of experience, didn't you, before you went flying? Well, I have. Uh, I've been flying for a few years. Uh, my father taught me to fly when I was fourteen, and that was fifty-three years ago. So I've been flying actively for fifty-three years. I have over twelve thousand hours. I'm um, uh, commercial, single-engine, multi-engine, CFI, CFII. Um, even though aviation really hasn't always been my vocation, it's always been my avocation. And I've always had aviation whenever my business, I've always used aircraft. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's the one thing that, you know, aviation flying is definitely in my blood and it will be there until I'm no longer on this earth. So, uh, so yeah, there's always an airplane around. Yeah, you are a testament to somebody who just absolutely loves to fly and has continued throughout their life. Um, you know, one of the things that I think uh, people have to realize, they, they should really push themselves, even at uh, some of those folks that are listening right now a little bit older, you know, it doesn't matter. Uh, challenge yourself and, and move forward. Some people think, oh, you know, I don't want to learn how to fly. I'm too old to do that. But uh, this flight you did, you weren't you weren't in your 20s or 30s, were you? Nope. Uh, when I did the flight, uh, in fact, uh, the flight was 2017. That was uh, four, almost exactly four years ago now. Uh, I would have completed the flight four years ago, uh, about, about two weeks ago, something like that. Uh, so I was 63 years old. I actually celebrated my 63rd birthday in uh, Chittagong, Bangladesh, on my trip. And uh, ended up overnighting there. Hadn't planned on it, but things just worked out that way. And uh, and, and celebrated with a three dollar lobster dinner. So three dollars, three dollars. Yes, that, that, that's pretty. Lobster's a little 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 cheaper <laughs> there in, in Bangladesh than it is in, in the United States. It sure is. Well, you're a testament to those people that are looking at a new challenge later in life. And uh, hats off to you for that. Um, let's back up, though, on Amelia Earhart. For those that don't understand this flight and where it actually traversed, maybe you could give us a, a quick overview. And uh, and then we're going to talk about the challenges and, and talk about a, a special island that you actually flew over. Sure. Okay. So um, she'd originally set out um, westbound. Uh, from uh, Oakland, California, going to Honolulu. But when she landed in Honolulu, uh, she uh, had a landing accident, damaged her airplane, and that stopped her flight westbound. Uh, they repaired the aircraft, and she flew it back to the United States. Uh, without telling anybody, she decided to um, continue, but uh, she decided to go eastbound, and she eliminated a number of members of her crew and uh, uh, reduced her crew down to herself and a navigator uh, by the name of Fred Noonan. And so from Oakland, she flew across the Southwest United States to Miami and then announced to the world that she was going to go ahead and uh, continue around the world from Miami uh, back to Oakland. 
again, uh, because she was trying to do things a little different, differently, she decided to fly at the equator. So she flew down through the, uh, through the Bahamas and the uh, Antilles to Venezuela and then down to Brazil, uh, to Natal, and then across the South Atlantic to Dakar in uh, Senegal on the uh, West Coast you know, kind of that, that west point of westmost point of uh, of uh, Africa, and then across sub-Saharan Africa, uh, eventually uh, ending up in Khartoum in the Sudan. Now that was kind of the first place where my route deviated from hers. Uh, she flew through what is now Eritrea and Yemen, and both of those are uh, kind of contraindicated for Americans these days. Likewise, uh, Venezuela. I didn't land in Venezuela. I landed in uh, Trinidad and and continued on to Suriname, um, and skipped Venezuela. Actually, had a number of uh, of uh, Venezuelans ask me to come, but then later on they said, "No, don't do it. We we can't guarantee your safety." So, anyway, so she continued across Africa uh, to India. Um, you know, that was prior to, uh, Pakistan being separate from India. So she went to, uh, what was then uh, Karachi in India. So she flew from, uh, Karachi to Kolkata in India. Nowadays, of course, that's a, that's a little, little different. I was a little worried about uh, going to Pakistan and then from Pakistan to India, because as, as I think a lot of people know, uh, the, the Pakistanis and the Indians are, are not the best friends. So anyway, continuing on down through um, uh, through uh, Burma or Myanmar now, and uh, and Thailand, and Singapore, and then she flew across Indonesia to Australia, Darwin, Australia. From there, she flew to Leh in Papua New Guinea, and the next leg after that was the leg where she disappeared. That leg was to fly to Howland Island a very, very small speck in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. And uh, she was going to land on the beach of Howland Island, which is a, a, one, a one mile by three mile island. Uh, the Coast Guard cutter Atasca was standing off the island with fuel and to provide a radio homing beacon for her to find the island, her and, uh, and uh, Fred Noonan. Uh, and unfortunately, that's where she disappeared. Uh, she was only two legs from completing her flight uh, from Howland Island. She was going to fly to Honolulu and then from Honolulu to Oakland, and that would have completed her circumnavigation. But unfortunately, she disappeared. Along, she and Fred disappeared, and uh, that's probably going to remain one of the great mysteries of the 20th century. You know, what happened to Amelia Earhart and Fred Noonan? I know there's been, when I talk to people about her flight, there's always some question about, you know, Fred Noonan. And what I have to tell them is Fred Noonan was a navigational rock star. There was nobody in 1937 who knew more about uh, aerial navigation, celestial navigation than Fred Noonan did. He set up all of the trans-Pacific routes for the clippers, you know, the China clipper and the, uh, the Manila clipper and, and so forth. So there was nobody who knew the Pacific Ocean better or knew how to navigate uh, to find a speck in the Pacific Ocean better than Fred Noonan did. Uh, plus the fact um, she had a then new a navigational device called a direction finding receiver, the precursor to our uh, ADF. And with a, with a manual loop that she could tune to uh, find a null and, and determine the direction of the uh, transmitter. 
unfortunately, she was just hit with a series of things that went wrong. Uh, her receiver failed and uh, there was overcast uh, over Howland Island. So there was no way for them to ever spot the island. Um, I'm sure Fred Noonan got within, you know, probably, you know, uh, a handful of miles, you know, maybe tens, 15 miles with, with celestial navigation. But however, they never found the Atasca. The Atasca was able to hear her transmissions, but they were not able, to, but she was not able to hear theirs. She was not able to home in on the ship. They were not able to find the island. And of course, that's the mystery. Where's Amelia Earhart? And uh, of course, I'm going to ask the, answer the question right now. Everybody says, well, so where's Amelia Earhart? And I, I tell them that uh, I, I don't know more than anyone else, but th three points, uh, they're kind of three schools of thought towards what happened to her. Uh, the first one and is kind of the one that I, that I adhere to, and that is the ocean is very big and the islands are very small. And so if she missed Howland Island, the odds are very great that uh, they went down in the ocean somewhere and we probably will never find them. Um, however, there was some indication that maybe she and Fred reached an island named Nikamororu, if I pronounced that correctly, Nikamororu. Um, uh, there were some radio transmissions that were picked up, uh, direction finding equipment pointed to that island. Uh, people who heard the transmission said that, the, that they were sure that that was her voice. Um, and I know that there have been uh, many um, um, people who have gone to the island and, and searched for, for signs of her. So that's kind of the second possible story. And of course, uh, the conspiracy theorists all, all like the one where she was captured by the Japanese and that was kept kept secret and the American government kept it secret. And she was eventually repatriated to the United States and, and was, uh, and, and was, you know, hidden away for years. Um, I think that one's kind of unlikely because she really did like, uh, she really did like being a celebrity. And I can't imagine that if she had made it back to the United States, she wouldn't have said, Hey, here I am. Um, so those are kind of the three, the three thoughts of, of what might have happened to her. And it would be great if we ever did find out. But, you know, um, it's, it's a great mystery and, and is likely to remain so. I think it's a great mystery that keeps us uh, <laughs> probing around and enabling us to keep telling this story. So maybe it's good that it's still a mystery. Oh, and by the way, the, the whole thing that you mapped out, you can go to projectameliaearhart.org. You can actually see a map of, of that on, right out there on the website uh, that uh, Brian's put together there. So if you want to, if you want to follow along, just go back and, right, and take right. a look yeah, at it's, that. It's all one word, projectameliaearhart.org. And um, that has, that has a lot of stuff in there. It has photos. It has my, uh, my blog, you know, as I, you know, every time I'd stop, I write and, and, you know, what, what happened. So uh, there's some videos on there um, anyway. So yes, if you have the opportunity, go look there. Um, I've kept it up and uh, it's, it, it's a pretty good uh, collection of information about uh, the trip, including the map of the uh, trip. And actually that map was generated by my, um, by my satellite phone uh, generating pins as I flew. So people who are watching me were able to watch in real time uh, where I was. I guess most people are going to ask, and I will too, um, 
what did Howland Island look like? Uh, you have photos of it? <laughs> yes, I do. And the photo is on the website. And I know when I showed the photo to one person uh, and, and, and he looked at it and said, what's that? And I said, oh, that's Howland Island. He said, oh, I thought that was a bird dropping on your window. <laughs> oh, my gosh. It was really, it's really tiny. I mean, it's one mile by three miles. And I'm viewing it from, uh, from four miles in the air. So it did not, uh, you know, it wasn't very big. But I did, as I flew over the island, um, I dropped two flowers on the island in memory of uh, Amelia Earhart and uh, Fred Noonan. I mean, after all, we uh, we should do what we can to remember them and and their attempt to uh, to set uh, you know to to advance aviation. Absolutely. And speaking of which, I mean, they had so many challenges. Um, there must have been a lot of challenges for you even before you did the flight. I'm just planning it. Well, it is. It's uh, any any circumnavigation really requires a lot of planning. Uh, as I told you, um, my father passed away in 2012. And so in 2012, I said, I'm going to do this. And so uh, even though I'd been talking about it, sort of planning it in my head, um, talking to people about, you know, you know, where do I get overflight permits and landing permits and things like that, um, I really went into high gear five years ahead of time. And the first thing I did was, of course, find and uh, acquire a Mooney. Uh, 231. It was a 1979 uh, Mooney 231, and uh, begin to outfit it for the flight around the world. Engine prop. The main reason I bought the airplane I did was it had a uh, freshly overhauled engine, a brand new prop, and it had a good autopilot. I really didn't care about anything else in in the airplane because I knew I was going to probably replace most of it. So, um, so yes, it began at that point. Uh, begin talking with uh, various people in different countries, um, getting in contact uh, with uh, great reference is Earth Rounders. In fact, if you'd like to get uh, go look and see who has flown around the world in a in a smaller aircraft, uh, something under fifteen thousand pounds gross weight, um, there all of those trips are are cataloged and uh, recorded at Earthrounders.org. And so, as I recall, um, and I was very much surprised when I found that I was in a very rare club, uh, solo circumnavigators, there weren't very many at that time, I forget the exact number, I think I was number 127, only 126 people had flown solo around the world before I did. And that since the beginning of aviation. And I'm in, you know, I'm in there as solo circumnavigators with the likes of Wiley Post, you know, so, um, so it does, it puts me in a very, very rare club. Not many people can say that, especially being part of that club with Wiley Post. Um, you know, again, going, you meant, mentioned, you know, the planning and, and it does take a lot, but, and there's a lot of challenges there, but I'm sure that the challenges during the flight, I mean, in, in such a long flight, you must have run up against a few challenges. Well, um, you know, there, there's, there's always little things. They had some mechanical things, had some electrical things. Uh, fortunately, I've, I've always been the kind of person who liked to uh, wrench on my own airplanes. So I always uh, participate in or do my own annual inspections. I have uh, several friends who are IAs, and they always look over my shoulder and make sure I'm doing everything correctly. I probably should go and get an A&P rating. But anyway, um, 
So I'm very comfortable doing most any kind of maintenance uh, or repair work on my airplanes. And I ended up having to do that on the, on the trip, a couple of places. Uh, I know that um, shortly after going uh, feet wet for my Atlantic crossing, my HF radio failed and I had to turn back to Brazil and take the radio apart and repair that. Uh, fortunately, I'm an electrical engineer also and, uh, and like working on that kind of equipment. So uh, that was kind of the first thing, um, doing maintenance on the airplane. You know, it's uh, when I got to Dakar, uh, that was my first big maintenance stop, uh, change the oil, clean to pull and clean the plugs. Uh, the Aero Club de Dakar uh, uh, was, uh, I was the guest of, of the Aero Club there. And their uh, ANPIA was a gentleman by the name of Tafa. And Tafa spoke no English. He spoke French and Swahili. And uh, I spoke neither French nor Swahili, but we both spoke aviation and we could smile and point and gesticulate. And uh, we had no trouble doing the oil change and, and uh, pulling spark plugs and cleaning them and, and adjusting and fueling the airplane and stuff like that. So, uh, you know, lots of, lots of handshakes and smiles and, uh, and uh, fist butts and uh, got the airplane all ready for its uh, trans uh, Africa uh, flight. So that was sort of a, an interesting thing there. Um, I would have to say in mechanical things, I had a, I had a magneto failure uh, when I got to Singapore. Uh, that Singapore was my next big uh, maintenance stop. And we did another, uh, did another 50-hour inspection on the airplane there, changed the oil, clean plugs, so on. Um, after we did all the maintenance, I pulled it out to do a, a post-maintenance um, uh, test run and found one of the mags was completely dead. And so then became the issue of how to get another magneto because that was one of the things I didn't carry with me was a spare magneto, and uh, uh, that was uh, that was solved through the uh, through the kindness of another pilot. There was a, uh, a pilot who was uh, doing some mapping uh, of uh, there around Singapore, and uh, he was flying a uh, Piper Seneca. He was from Australia, and so he loaned me his spare magneto took my Magneto with him back to Bundaberg in Australia and had my Magneto repaired. And so when I got to Australia with his Magneto, we pulled his mag off, put my mag back on, and I was ready to uh, ready to go with my own Magneto again. His name's Rowan Lloyd. And uh, we joke about being uh, a brothers of, of another mother. And uh, he's, a, he's an aerial applicator, a crop duster. He does uh, aerial mapping. And back when they had the fires uh, in Australia a year or so ago, he was very active in doing uh, aerial, uh, you know, aerial firefighting, you know, dropping uh, uh, fire retardant water on the fires. Uh, so yeah, he was he was great. In fact, when I got there, he wouldn't take any money for uh, for the repair of the Magneto, and then he even paid for a tank of gas for me in the in the airplane. So you know, this is that was the kind of thing I got all the way across is people were were so open and friendly and wonderful you know from dakar until i got to australia you know i was kind of flying through the heart of of islam and people you know here in the united states we're we're, we're kind of uh you know we 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 hear a lot bad about uh islam and the people of of islam and all i can say is i was treated like royalty by everyone I met, uh, flying across, you know, through, through Africa and, uh, Pakistan and Indonesia. So, you know, it, uh, all I can say is aviation 
does tie us all together and and uh, uh, we can transcend the the political uh, to uh, to enjoy and experience uh, our love for aviation. So let's see other things. Probably the biggest one everybody wants to hear about is the fact that I actually had an in- engine failure over the Pacific Ocean. Uh, I had departed from uh, because I couldn't really follow Amelia Earhart's route after uh, Darwin, Australia. I thought, you know, here I am in Australia. I've always wanted to visit Australia. And here I am in Australia with my airplane. I'm going to fly across Australia. So I flew down from uh, from Darwin down through the outback uh, to Ayers Rock and uh, Birdsville and up to Bundaberg on the uh, East Coast down to Sydney. And then from there, I flew across to New Zealand. I went to Hamilton, New Zealand, uh, where I was going to do, uh, do maintenance again. And uh, from New Zealand, I was going to fly to, um, to American Samoa, uh, Pongo Pongo, and then from there to Honolulu. Well, I had taken off from Hamilton, New Zealand, and I was climbing out on my leg to uh, American Samoa. And I just leveled off at 21,000 feet, uh, you know, close the cow flap, set the power setting for cruise, got the autopilot set and was, uh, was beginning to, uh, you know, kind of set up for my eight hour leg to, uh, to Pongo Pongo when the engine began to surge. And of course, it's one of those, you know, you get that first surge. And the first thing you think is, ah, that didn't happen. I didn't feel that. And then, uh, and then it began to surge more and it was clear that, that something was going on. And I had just started to turn around. I just, I was still in VHF communications with Auckland Center. And I just turned around and, and the engine started to sputter and then it quit cold. So the first thing I wondered was, am I going to go swimming? But I got the airplane pointed back to uh, the North Island of New Zealand. Um, for flight has the ability to give you a glide ring to show you, you know, how far you can glide. And it was clear from the glide ring that I was going to be able to reach a 3000 foot field on barrier Island, which is on the North uh, Northeast edge of the North Island of New Zealand. So I was, so I got the airplane turned around headed for barrier Island. Uh, I still had full electrical power. The prop was turning, the engine was turning. Um, so I could continue to use my avionics. I could continue to use the autopilot. So I set the autopilot up and began the process of troubleshooting, you know, what was going on, you know, check the mags. Um, and I was pretty sure at that point that it was some kind of a fuel problem. In fact, I began to suspect that I had lost my engine driven fuel pump. So I started playing with the electric boost pump and found that uh, low boost wouldn't keep the engine running, but it would make it come back for about three or four seconds, and then it would go away again. Uh, but I also had the same problem when I turned it on high boost. But at that point, I suspected that the high on high boost, the boost pump was flooding the engine. So I started uh, with the high boost on, started experimenting with throttle position and mixture position. And I found a position of the mixture control very close to idle cutoff that would allow the engine to, to run and continue running. Uh, that happened. Um, and with that running, I was able to uh, sustain about 13,000 feet. I crossed over Barrier Island. Um, and I realized with 13,000 feet, I could continue on towards North Island, and hopefully I would be able to um, leapfrog. If I, the engine quit again, I could still glide back to uh, 
North Island to Barrier Island, or I could continue on to the mainland. So I got past the halfway point uh, and started leapfrogging from uh, from airport to airport. Made it back to Hamilton, New Zealand, which I really wanted to do because Hamilton hosts uh, the company that is the Lycoming and Continental Overhauler in New Zealand. I knew if I could get back there, no matter what the problem was on the engine, I'd be able to fix it. And I was able to make it back to uh, back to Hamilton, New Zealand. But it ended up costing me over a week, and that was what killed my ability to finish my uh, flight at Oshkosh that year. I was hoping to land at Oshkosh, and they had all set up with a, a place front and center for me to uh, to be the person who flew the longest distance to reach Oshkosh that year. So 29,000 nautical miles. It's a pretty long way to go to get to Oshkosh. Yeah, they're, they're shorter routes. <laughs> there are. Yeah, Definitely. <laughs> But and, and you know what? I don't think there are any longer routes. I don't think it's no. possible to fly any greater distance to reach Oshkosh than 29,000 nautical miles. You know, flying over the water like that, uh, single engine, I don't feel comfortable in a twin a lot of times, but single engine that far out, uh, there's got to be some preparation you did in case you went down. Um, what did you bring with you? Well, um, actually, since I knew I was going to be flying in the tropics, um, pretty much the entire time I didn't carry normally I would carry an immersion suit if I'm ferrying an aircraft across say the, the Atlantic because you, you're up in the northern latitudes but I was down by the equator where they where the uh, water temperatures are warm enough that hypothermia is not really going to be an issue so the things I carried I had uh, an EPIRB you know a personal uh, a personal locator transmitter that was uh, was attached to my uh, life vest which I wore uh, and I also had had a, a satellite phone, um, and the uh, and a raft, life raft, three man life raft. As far as uh, requirement for the aircraft, the aircraft had to have an HF radio, like shortwave. Um, HF allows you to communicate long distances uh, without having uh, you know without having to have any infrastructure. So I had both HF, which is required by law by the uh, by the FAA for over water crossings. And uh, in addition, I had a, had a satellite phone. Um, so I, I had four comm radios in my airplane. I had the standard two VHF comm radios, an HF comm radio, and then a satellite phone. And that was all linked through my regular audio panel in the aircraft. So I could uh, communicate on any one of those anytime uh, just by punching up the correct uh, comm radio input on the, uh, on the audio panel. And we hear about VHF and the SATCOM. But uh, HF, uh, not too many people have installed HF, I think, on a small aircraft or know how to do that and learned how to communicate. How did you go about learning how to communicate on an HF radio and then also learn how to install it into your Mooney? Well, uh, <laughs> I've been a ham radio operator for a long time. And, uh, of course, that's, you know, ham radio operators, they operate on HF a lot. And so, therefore, I learned uh, learned quite a bit about HF transceivers, antennas, antenna tuners, and things like that. So, with the help of uh, Bonnie Crystal, uh, who is a uh, who's an electrical engineer who specializes in HF antennas and HF communications, uh, she helped me uh, build a mathematical model of the uh, Mooney and various antennas on it. And so, we were able to uh, design the antenna for the Mooney. Uh, in the computer first, and then I went ahead and uh, and installed it in the aircraft while we were doing the upgrades to the avionics. And in fact, the uh, HF transceiver is a permanent installation in the uh, in the panel of the airplane. It's not a 
not added after the fact. So, uh, so yeah, it's fully integrated into the uh, avionic suite in the airplane. The airplane pretty much has everything electronic you can have. Um, you know, as pilots, we now have GPS and GPS is wonderful. And it does, it makes navigating especially made, you know, I had my own Fred Noonan there with the GPS, but uh, I also included uh, things that most people remove from their airplanes. Now I added DME, I added ADF. Um, I have had situations where I'm flying over the water and GPS goes away and I've had no choice, but to use dead reckoning and or uh, ADF uh, to continue navigating. It's amazing how far ADF will reach if you're tuning in a 50,000 watt AM station someplace close to where you want to go. Um, I know that over the Atlantic Ocean, when I was flying to, uh, to Ireland, uh, they, I flew beyond the range of the Loran, and my Loran never did lock up again. So uh, the final, oh, probably 600 miles across the Atlantic Ocean, it was ADF until I got in range of VOR, and then it was VOR until I got to, uh, got to uh, Shannon, Ireland. So thinking about that, you know, on that long leg from American Samoa to Honolulu via Howland Island, I, uh, I was prepared and practiced uh, dead reckoning. You know, using my GPS, I would uh, keep track of my position, heading, winds aloft, um, that information, so that if I were to lose my GPS, I could continue uh, with dead reckoning until I could get in range of uh, the AM broadcast station in uh, Honolulu, which I figured I could probably pick up from five or 600 miles out and use that to navigate until I could pick up the uh, VOR in Honolulu. So that was my backup. And, uh, you know, young people who are planning to, to say, you know, fly around the world and fly across oceans, I tell them, you really do have to plan for failure of GPS because it does go away. And uh, you can't be sure that that magenta line is going to carry you all the way to your destination. So you really do have to, to do the old school stuff. Get out the old E6B and work your wind triangles and uh, time, speed, distance. And uh, that will get you in range of something that will allow you to, to then navigate closer in, you know, VOR or, uh, or non-directional beacon ADF. So those old school things still work and they're still valid. And uh, I recommend people keep using them. You know, I, I love, I'm so glad you said that. I keep telling my students, it's like, that's why we do the E6B and that's why we learn how we do dead reckoning and the GPS do fail. You know, I've had two GPSs fail and, uh, in one flight and well, luckily I had inertial reference, but anyway, I mean, you, you, <laughs> I did it, not well, have you, you INS. Did, you, in my no, you didn't have INS, but, and, and that's one of the things that we get, we get so spoiled uh, with all the backups of the backups of the backups, but uh, understanding the technology is so important. That's one of the things I love about your journey is that you can go back and look at that and discover that technology we call quote unquote, old school technology, which is still important uh, to understand. And it also helps us appreciate what we have now, I feel. Oh, absolutely. But for sure, I had an E6B in my airplane with me in the pocket of my seat next to me. And I did occasionally whip it out and, uh, and work some problems. I'm still pretty good on the E6B. So how, and, how uh, many batteries did you bring with you for the E6B? Um, the E6B, for some strange reason, it didn't need any batteries the entire trip. 
<laughs> so, it was amazing. So you, you didn't have the the battery operated one. Had the actual no, no. <laughs> I, it's, it's amazing how well the old that old circular slide rule works. I, I one of uh, one of the things I've done in my life is I've been a, a science teacher, uh, uh, a STEM teacher. You know, science, technology, engineering, math, and um, I would incorporate ham radio and uh, in into my uh, my STEM program. And I incorporated aviation into my STEM program because I would, uh, you know, when you're doing math, math is very boring and dry. So my approach to uh, to give to to time speed distance problems and things like that was I made the kids. We took all the whack charts for the United States, made a huge chart of the United States, and then I made the kids plan flights, and they learned how to use the E six B. And the way I convinced them to use the E six B is I would challenge them to come up with, or I would come up with with problems and I would race them solving these problems with the E6B. And I told them they could, they could use pencil paper, they could use a calculator and I'd always beat them getting the answer. Um, and I would always, of course, I'd always pick problems that, that were, were such that it would require a whole bunch of button pressing on the, uh, on the calculator. But anyway, I I'd do them on the E6B and get the answer really quickly. And, and uh, so then it was kind of like, how does that work? And so I could explain how how you how a slide rule works, how a circular slide rule works, and stuff like that. Of course, that's a an application of mathematics, and uh, and they very much got into that. So yeah, that's absolutely fascinating. It's a, it's amazing. I love uh, showing people my old slide rule, and uh, you know they they stopped using them, but they still teach them, or they did. They don't do that anymore. Uh, logarithms. We yes. still talk about logarithms, and yes. uh, and that's just a physical implementation of uh, of using logarithms to do multiplication and division. You know, it's so neat to see that you've used the old uh, school navigation incorporated into the new technologies. And I was, you know, as I was listening to you, I'm thinking, I, I wonder, this is a hard question probably, is, you know, is there maybe one memorable moment that you had during this journey? I'm sure there's a few. <laughs> there are quite a few memorable moments, um, uh, but three immediately, you know, three really pop into my head. Uh, the first one that really hit me was when I got to Dakar, Senegal. And as I said, I was the guest of the Aero Club de Dakar, which happens to be the oldest continuously operating aero club in the world started in 1932. And, um, when I got there, I mean, it's like you park the airplane and you walk into the end of the clubhouse and it's all wood and there's, you know, there's a wood bar there. And it's like, it's like stepping back into Casablanca. Okay. The movie. And, uh, it's, it's just, you know, just that sudden feeling of being transported back 80 years. And I walked out onto the back porch and there was a mural. And the mural was a painted mural of a plate from the book, Le Petit Prince, The Little Prince, which was written by Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, who was, I mean, he was Mr. Aviation back in the, back in the thirties. And, and I saw that and, you know, the, the hair stood up on the back of my neck and I went back in and I said, was son, was Antoine de Sonic super a member of the club? Oh yes. He was, he was, he was one of the members of the club. And, and, and they said, and they said, we've had many people here who were members of the club. Um, Charles Lindbergh was a member of the club. Amelia Earhart was a member of the club. And it was like, 
you know, I asked and they said that I can become a member. I, I, I still haven't, uh, still haven't finished that process, but, uh, but that was a very memorable moment to be, to be thrown back so clearly into, uh, you know, 80 years into the past and to, and to feel like, like I was there in the moment in 1937 on the footsteps of, of the likes of Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, Amelia Earhart, Charles Lindbergh, you know, it, it really kind of cemented for me that, that I really was, was joining that club. Uh, another one was landing in, in Myanmar in Yangon in Myanmar, um, right after I'd had a, a, a weather related incident. Uh, I actually got upset in a uh, in a thunderstorm there. I got vectored into an immature thunderstorm. It didn't show up on my storm scope. It didn't show up on uh, on uh, ATC's radar because the rain hadn't started. Uh, but shortly after I entered the cloud, it turned into a mature thunderstorm. Actually, rolled me almost inverted. Uh, rolled. I it ended up with 135 degrees of roll, and I was left um, uh, 30 degrees nose down, pitch down. And uh, I teach upset prevention and recovery training. And my, my training just kicked in, you know, I, uh, unload, uh, roll, uh, recover back to level, uh, unload power roll and, uh, exited the cloud. No issue, no, no damage to the airplane, uh, other than just a, wow, that was interesting. And, uh, got a new vector back onto the ILS for the landing at, uh, Yangon and, uh, landed, put the airplane away, went to my hotel and saw the, uh, from in the distance, I saw the golden pagoda of Yangon. And this is a Buddhist temple, a, a huge Buddhist temple. So I walked the, the, the five kilometers to, uh, to the golden pagoda and walked around that. And that was, that was a, a, a breathtaking thing. Uh, I, I'd never seen anything like it. I mean, it's, it's gold and it's huge. And uh, there are thousands of people there, uh, you know, basically uh, coming to visit, um, you know, the, the, the pagoda. So that was one of those things that was, that was really, uh, really pretty amazing. And, uh, of course, uh, overflying Howland Island, you know, even though, uh, you know, flying over there, looking down at that tiny, tiny island and wondering about how Amelia Earhart and Fred Noonan were, were hoping to hit that very tiny spot in the ocean and that they, and, and that, that they failed, they didn't make it. But there I was over the island looking down on that and knowing that, that this was the, the last spot that, uh, that anyone um, had contact with Amelia Earhart, the, uh, the Coast Guard cutter Atasca down there standing off the island. So that was another one of those uh, one of those things, but I could go through and lots of lots of little things um, stopping. Um, let's see, uh, other weather related stuff uh, turned out to be a non issue, but uh, about uh, two thirds of the way across Africa, I landed in um, Jemena in Chad, which is the capital of Chad, and um, I was racing as I was approaching. I was racing a haboob. Which is a which is a, a you know an African dust storm um, to the runway, you know the it's getting closer to the runway same time I was I touched down literally seconds before it covered up the runway, uh, so of course it was it was a non-issue, but I probably would have had to do something close to a zero zero landing ILS in there in you know forty knot winds. Um, and, and, you know, cause the visibility dropped to less than a quarter of a mile in dust. 
And uh, so, yeah, if I hadn't gotten there, you know, that was one of those serendipitous things where I got there exactly the right time. If it had taken literally, if it had taken me a minute longer, I would have been landing in, in the middle of a, of a severe dust storm. So that was one of those, you know, we, uh, few things. Yeah. Wipe the, wipe the brow. And, uh, and in fact, that was one of the, I had tried for, uh, for a number of, for over a year to get fuel placed for me there in, in Jemena. And I was never able to get fuel. Now I had the, the hop across Africa was the first time I needed to completely fuel the airplane to carry all 210 gallons of fuel, even crossing the Atlantic. I didn't need, I didn't need that much fuel, but because I didn't think, I didn't know if I was going to be able to get fuel in Chad. Uh, I had to carry enough fuel to make it all the way from Dakar uh, to Khartoum. So uh, when I got to Chad, what I ended up uh, to give myself just a little bit of margin, I, I like three hours of reserve. Uh, you're going to cross the, cross the ocean. You want a lot of reserve fuel. You never know. You get there. If the weather's bad, you know, you throttle back to, uh, you know, uh, loiter, you know, minimum, uh, minimum fuel consumption speed, uh, loiter speed and, and wait it out or fly someplace else. I always want to have some reserve. So anyway, um, what I did to ensure that I had, I had my three hours of reserve at Khartoum, uh, what I did was I mixed Avgas with Mogas. I got premium Mogas there and I reserved 20 gallons. I burned 20 gallons out of my right main fuel tank and filled that back up with uh, Mogas. So I had a mix of uh, 35 gallons of Avgas, 20 gallons of Mogas. Uh, I left the left tank full of Avgas. I took off on my leg to Khartoum. I took off on the uh, on the left tank, climbed to my cruise altitude, um, pulled the power back to sixty percent, which was my normal normal economy cruise, and then switched to the Avgas Mogas mix, watching very, the engine monitor very carefully for any signs of detonation. Uh, if I'd seen that, you know, the, the symbol, the signal for detonation is a sudden rise in CHTs and a drop in EGTs. So I'm watching very carefully for that. And turns out at the lower power setting that I had and the, the, there was enough lead in the Avgas mixed with the premium Mogas, I was able to, uh, to use that. And it ended up on that leg. I needed those reserves. I got um, a very large uh, storm. Uh, pushed me over a hundred miles off course. I kept having to turn further and further north to get around it. And uh, that ended up uh, using up some of my reserve. And so I was very glad to have that little extra reserve to make it to Khartoum. I did land with, I landed with about two hours of reserve, which was my, that Avgas that I had, that Mogas I had put in was my, ended up being my reserve getting to Khartoum. So it was just lots of little things. Uh, and it's, you know, defense in depth, you want to make sure that you have reserve on top of reserve on top of reserve, whether it's navigation, GPS, plus ADF, plus VOR, plus dead reckoning. You know, those, that's my, my defense in depth and backup fuel. I wanted to make sure that I kept uh, three hours of reserve fuel for, uh, for long legs. The most alone I felt on this whole trip was flying over Africa. There was no one to talk to. Um, There's no ATC to speak of. Um, brief weather briefings pretty much consist of, yeah, there are thunderstorms. There are going to be thunderstorms out there. <laughs> you know? So, uh, so it's pretty much me, the airplane, and and my experience uh, in eyeballing weather and and trying to figure out 
um, you know, in-flight uh, weather briefings from from what I can see and what I can glean from my storm scope. And uh, uh, I had friends who would uh, call me up on the would send me texts. I had one gentleman who uh, lived in uh, in Indonesia, followed me so closely, he would actually look at the satellite pictures. And looking at my track across the uh, across uh, the world, he would then text me weather information about what was ahead of me. So that was uh, that was kind of a uh, nice friend. Yeah, uh, uh, Rosario Ruskandar in uh, in Indonesia. Uh, he very very nice gentleman. In fact, uh, when I landed in Badung in Indonesia. Uh, he hosted me. In fact, he had the whole aero club there, the ham radio club there. And then they whisked me off to a, uh, a conference center where they had the newspaper and the radio and TV to, to interview me flying around the world. And then he, I was a guest in his home. And, uh, and so that was, that was another one of those, you know, really kind of neat moments where people are you know you find out that people around the world are pretty much the same and they want the same things and they like the same things and uh there are very few people in the world who wish anybody else ill and i got to meet a lot of them on this trip yeah that's an important message right there and uh you know we only have a f- about five minutes left and i think that's that's a, a good spot to kind of finish up on here is uh you know the fact that your journey really kind of i think brought you closer to the world and close the world closer to you, but also us closer to the world and realizing uh, that we all are very similar. And, uh, and I know that really wasn't the purpose of this trip in the beginning, but uh, you know, this really has taught me a lot about uh, an around the world flight, just listening to you. Um, but what's, what's next? I mean, gosh, you know, you're, you did this around the world flight. I mean, what's, what's next for Brian? You know, Brian doesn't know. Brian's working, continuing to work on on aviation. I'm active CFI. Uh, I teach. I like to teach things that other people don't. You can find a lot of CFIs out there who will teach you to be a private, you know, get your private pilot certificate or get your instrument rating. But I like to teach things that that other people don't. I teach. Um, I teach spins. I teach upset prevention recovery training. I teach basic aerobatics. Um, I like to mentor young CFIs and help them uh, really develop their stick and rudder skills. I think that that's going to be the, the key. I really think that developing stick and rudder skills are the key to reducing loss of control accidents, much more so than we're going to put a magic autopilot and a parachute in our airplane. And, and you know, technology is wonderful, but the one piece of equipment that every airplane has and will always have is a pilot. And if that pilot is competent and proficient, there won't be accidents. And so helping helping young pilots develop those skills is one of the things I'm working on. But other than that, you know, believe it or not, I'd actually punched pretty much everything in my, uh, in my uh, list. I thought about setting the world speed record from New York to Paris, but then I thought about the risks, possibly, you know, what would happen if something went, went wrong in the middle of winter crossing the North Atlantic. And I thought, Yes, I could get that, and I'd end up with a plaque on my uh, on my wall that said I held the speed record from New York to Paris. 
but was it worth the risk? And I decided, no, that probably isn't worth the risk. But things I'm currently working on, I'm currently working on my rotary wing rating. I have a, uh, UA, a 1951 Hiller UH-12B, a real honest-to-gosh MASH helicopter, and I'm getting that back in the air, and I'm going to use that to get my, uh, to get my helicopter, uh, helicopter rating. And so, um, so helping, helping other pilots, that's really what's in, in it for me for the future. Helping young people uh, become interested in and develop their, their love for and their skills uh, in flying. I've got a lot of experience, and now it's time for me to share that experience and help others to have experiences like I have had. So that's, that's what's next in store for me. We are going to watch that journey and we are excited about what's next. And you have a lot of runway in front of you and we're excited. Yep, to see I'm only 67. Happens. I mean, right. you know, I figure I've got at least another, I got at least another 30 years. I'm going to be flying at a hundred. That's what I, that's one of my targets. I'm going to go out on my hundredth birthday and go flying. For those of us that have gray hair and those that are getting started in flying, don't forget, you can do it. You can do it now, even if you're starting in your 50s and 60s. Uh, you can learn so much from, from Brian Lloyd. As a matter of fact, go check out the websites. First of all, obviously, the project AmeliaEarhart.org, all one word, and also Lloyd.Arrow. Lloyd.Arrow. We'll have all those in the show notes, all those, those links, especially like Earth Rounders and that type of thing. But it really is important, I think. To, to help people and educate people uh, as you move forward in your life, in your flying life, just like Brian has done. And I think, Brian, that's you also set a great example for those of us that have been flying for a few years. Maybe push ourselves uh, for us to educate the, the next, quote unquote, generation of pilots. I really appreciate Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Get yeah. out there and, and help. Um, there's a lot of experience out there in, in those of us who, who have gray hair or white hair, as it may be, or maybe no hair. There's, there's not a lot left on top of my head anymore. So, uh, but, you know, doesn't mean we can't help these young people uh, become better pilots and uh, carry uh, aviation on into the, uh, you know, if, get through the 21st century. That's for sure. Brian, thanks so much for being here. I really appreciate that. This is an amazing journey. I've learned so much during this. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure, you know, talking and and uh, and telling you about my story. And uh, I hope your listeners will uh, will feel free to contact me, and and maybe I can help them uh, with uh, with something they'd like to do. Yeah, if you're thinking about doing the around the world flight, or you want to learn more about his flight, it's really easy. ProjectAmeliaEarhart.org, all one word. We'll put a link in the show notes. Also, if you want to find out more about the flight instruction, Lloyd.Arrow, Lloyd.Arrow, again in the show notes. And we've been speaking with Brian Lloyd, who actually uh, went solo around the world tracing the steps of Amelia Earhart on the 80th anniversary. I, I really highly recommend you checking out ProjectAmeliaEarhart.org. Uh, you can follow the journey videos, pictures. Also, if you're somebody who's thinking about getting into radio, ham radio has lots of good information there. The After Landing Checklist. Really appreciate everybody listening right now. And also, I want you to do something for me. Do me a favor and, and just, you know, don't stop here. Go out there and do something in aviation just like Brian has done. No matter where you are in your aviation journey, whether it's looking at a website like Project Amelia Earhart, maybe researching some new rating, learning how to become a ham radio operator. I think it's really important for us to move forward in our lives in aviation. And uh, I really, really appreciate what everybody has done uh, for the podcast through our Patreons. Uh, you know, you go to com slash Patreon to help us out. 
produce this type of material. Well, folks, we'll talk to you next episode. Safe flying out there. You've been listening to the Stuck Mike Abcast. Members of the Stuck Mike Abcast may receive compensation for products or services mentioned during the podcast. Compensation may be received in the form of, but not limited to, referral commissions, free products, or service trials. Our opinions and views are never influenced by any compensation, and you should always perform your own due diligence before purchasing any products or services mentioned during the show. The Stuck Mike Avcast is an aviation podcast and a Valeri Aviation Corporation production.